Okay, today we are doing P2. This is the method of dynamic factors in bioindication and phytoremediation. And the reason that we're doing this article is because it talks about how to select for species. So we all kind of started in the middle of the phyto project with the assumption that plants can do this and that we can somehow measure how they actually accumulate material. But this article is sort of a back to basics on how do we actually select species and how do we actually select the species and the ecosystems that we want in these contaminated conditions. Because it's not necessarily just if the species can take up the metals or the salt or whatever we're interested in, but if they can survive in the long term and if they can build self-healing, sustainable forest communities in this case. So we're gonna talk about the Scots pine as our case study today. But again, the value of this article is not just that Scott's pine is a metal accumulator, that's good to know, but also how do we measure metal accumulators, how do we select species, and then how do we select communities to encourage resilience and overall uptake, not necessarily just maximizing our bioaccumulation factors. So let's begin. Uh, the method of dynamic factors in bioindication and phytoremediation. This is from our phytoremediation volume one. How can we tell if a plant is good for phytoapplications? What do we test? How do we look at its soil and contaminant interactions? And this is complicated, right? Plants have specific positions, environmental composition, and special diversity even within species that can cause different individuals to behave differently under different conditions of light, soil, water, nutrients, population density, etc. And these differences can be broadly categorized as internal or physiological, external as ecological factors, and then further differentiated as biotic or abiotic conditions. The chemical and the geochemical characteristics of soils, for example, may be a combination of all of these factors and may change within just a few meters of a prospective plant. So the biochemical differences in species can also be widely varied. So the biochemistry here refers to how plants take in light, produce cellulose, power themselves, how they interact with fungal and microbial species. So there's a number of, of biochemical indicators here. So what is a usable hyperaccumulation genetic adaptation for one plant could be a metabolic weakness in another or it could even weak, weaken that same plant in, for a different contaminant. So even the same adaptation can impact one metabolic process positively and another negatively, thus affecting the overall fitness of the plant significantly. And we'll see that with the Scots pine here. So as we can see, this is a hideously complex and interrelated question that's highly dependent on a number of conditions, only a few of which we as scientists or engineers can control. So even the separate organs of the individual plant can respond to different contaminants in different ways and can impact the overall health in a series of complex interactive webs that may or may not serve our goals in cleanup. So we need to find a way to break down how the plant interacts with metals, in this case, across a wide variety of conditions, right? Sometimes the plant can translocate, which means that the material goes into vegetative organs but we can't use that because when vegetative organs fall to the ground and decompose, all that metal goes right back into the soil. For example, we may have a biophilicity, right? So here we're seeing that the 
Ectomycorrhizal symbiosis within the root structures facilitates a root-to-shoot transfer. So that means that they're highly amenable to taking up those nutrients, including metals, and that's a biophilicity, and we can compare that around the globe. But that also doesn't say how well it stays there, and it doesn't say how well the remediation is going to work. Again, translocation isn't remediation. So we've got some problems here, right? So we need to break down all those relationships in a way that makes sense. So today we'll be looking at the Scots pine. This is Pinus sylvestris L as a case study, not just in metal hyperaccumulation and growth, but as a way to understand how to look for those useful bioindicators and how to test for overall metal remediation using a quantifiable and repeatable method applicable to most test conditions and species. Right, so we're not just looking at Scott's pine as a way to remediate metals, but we're looking to find a way to even understand what we should look for. And Scott's pine is a great way to do that. So let's start kind of at the beginning. Trees are the darling of phytoremediation specialists because of their large biomass, genetic variation, ease of forestry management, biomass conversion into energy using anaerobic digestion, uh, and we'll go into that a little bit in our water treatment series. But this is a common and relatively inexpensive method that can also be used to produce biogas, uh, which is very profitable. Well, which is profitable. Very is a harsh qualifier there. But people like them, so there's a positive societal response towards planting trees, and it provides resilience for uh, landscapes in the face of wind and water erosion. So we like trees. So if we can make a remediation plot pretty, healthy, and cheap, we can maximize the effective return on investment from the remediation activities into a social and economic payoff in a couple different sectors, financially speaking, which will ultimately make phytoremediation more acceptable, more common for use, as opposed to the current practice where managers seem to view it with quite a bit of suspicious and recalcitrant acceptance. So imagine if instead of having a super fun site, you could make a park. Right, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make land that is formally unusable and toxic. We want to make it something that is usable for either societal or industrial purposes um, so that we can benefit financially in multiple sectors. So it's not just a piece of land that has to be treated and left alone. It's a usable piece of land that can be incorporated into the landscape safely, effectively, uh, and profitably. Right, That's the real goal. But the point of phytoremediation and the point of what we're going to talk about today is remediation, right? We want our plants to take up specific chemicals of interest, sequester them in their organs, and then let us come and harvest them out in some way without negatively impacting animals or people. So we got to think about making sure animals and people don't eat the fruits, right? That animals don't eat the bark, things like that. And there are several ways that plants do this remediation. We have bioaccumulation, biophilicity, phytoremediation, and translocation. And for the purposes of this article, we'll collectively identify these things as the dynamic factors, right? So this is the dynamic remediation factor is our goal, and it is made up of these multiple factors. We can also use trees in another rather unique way. So trees, as most of us know, provide a little timeline of growth in their rings. They can be used as dendrochronological and dendroindicational methods 
for all kinds of useful information, such as fire season, year and length, drought year and length, anthropogenic effects on forests, including carbon transfer, and for us, they describe the selective uptake of contaminants of interest. So we can measure the concentration of metals from the tree rings. And we could, this is a fantastic way to quantify uptake better than other species, as well as trigger indications, right? This is how we can find if the trees are taking up metals. So let's talk about metals. Metals are a problem. Anything from construction to federal DOD sites to industrial buildings, it doesn't matter. Anything that we build or construct will essentially have a metal impact on the soil. Metals are deposited by pretty much everything. Every time we build a power line, run a train, build a building, a small proportion of the metals in that capital project end up going to the soil. That includes oil changes, right? Every time we do an oil change and you drop a little on the concrete, well, there are metals in there. So every time it rains or the wind blows hard, a little bit of that goes into the soil or a nearby water body, and then they just sit there. So for some government facilities like ranges, those metals are highly concentrated little packets of leaking toxins that just get worse and worse every year. Um, for other places, it's just a gradual buildup in the sands and in the water systems of these toxic metals. And eventually that will contaminate your water source or it'll essentially salt your fields and then you can't grow anything. Because living things cannot usually tolerate metals. Our systems don't like any more than a tiny trace of things like nickel, cadmium, and lead anymore, and, and the living organisms start shutting down. So a small amount can help facilitate enzymatic reactions and biochemical reactions, but once you exceed that small amount, you start getting toxicity levels. So those metals start interfering with enzymatic or neurochemical triggers or they can trigger high amounts of cellular waste or an immune response that eventually leads to a cytokine storm and a full system shutdown. So it's unpleasant for living things to take up metals. And that's why something like the Scots pine is so remarkable and so interesting to, to us. So here is a plant that has adapted ectomycorrhizal and microbial symbioses along with biochemical processes that allow for a huge, relatively speaking, amount of metals to be safely sequestered in the plant without impacting its health too much. So in this case study, the Scots pine was grown near a shooting range that contained three times higher zinc, five times a concentration of nickel, and three times higher concentrations of copper than the surrounding soils which were about 200 meters away. So this local deviation from baseline was also confirmed by nickel and copper concentrations in a nearby water body, which exceeded the highest permissible concentration for drinking water by about 19 to 22 times, respectively for nickel and copper. But the pines in this local area were thriving so researchers took a look at their bark and discovered 1.3 times background concentrations of copper, two times concentrations of nickel in that bark, making us making them bioindicators that this might be a hyperaccumulator plant. So it's a great test subject for figuring out how we identify our hyperaccumulators and how we identify 
um, what they can do, right? Because as a project manager, client's going to be asking you, hey, how much metal can I take out of this thing? What's our estimated rate of return on planting these trees? You know, how long am I going to have to keep this plot uh, undeveloped or keep these trees alive? So you got to you got to make some good assumptions on what the plant is actually going to be doing with this metal, but that's very complicated. So we're going to find out how. So just as an interesting little note, I mean, uh, I enjoy wastewater. It's one of my favorite subjects. So there were some additional studies conducted using metal contaminated sewage sludge over soil, and the measured uptake rates were conducted over six years on these Scott's pine. And so Scott's pine was able to sequester up to five times higher values of nickel, lead, and copper um, than other species with an astounding 87% greater biomass production than some other species. I think it was 60 to 87, depending on which species you compared, but you know, at its max, 87% greater biomass than other species. And the biomass is important to us because all that metal has to go somewhere, right? So if we're able to harvest translocated metal before it hits the ground again, and then do something with it, either precipitate out the metals or stabilize it in some way, that's great. Um, if we're not, and it has to go into the actual woody biomass, well, we're going to have to do something with that at the end of the day. So it's great that it uptakes this amount, but then we need to figure out what that translocation or um, felicity factor is to be able to figure out what we're going to do with metal contaminated wood, right? Because you still have the same problem. Now it's out of the soil, but I got to do something with it. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But for the purposes of this, how, how did the Scots pine do this? So, so researchers identified a couple major conditions. The first was that Scots pine had an increased specific root length. So we've got more surface area contact. It had a reduction in the root to shoot ratio. So that means that it's not translocating metals necessarily in new growth. Uh, it's putting it in the bark and in the woody biomass that's easier to control and accumulate. And it had wider root, root branching, again, surface area. So measuring sequestered heavy metals was facilitated by its lower height, so it's little. It's got a nice big trunk diameter. It's got good dry biomass that we can measure um, by weight. And all of these are easily accessible. The bark and the trunk are amenable to biomonitoring areogenic metals, so we can do borings, we can do leaf sampling um, by GCL, and uh, it doesn't mind if we do that, so we're not impacting the health of the tree. And it has the ability to make symbiotic fungal relationships that can increase resilience, nutrient transfer, and even water transfer, making it a hardy and protected root system. So this symbiosis may explain why Scott's pine seemed to suffer less from an H. anosum infection, which is a dangerous root rot pathogen that likes to eat conifers and is very prevalent in the region. So there seems to be some evidence that the greater uptake of nickel and chromium in the test plot may have been a further defense against this fungal pathogen, that the pine itself was preferentially selecting metals to imbue into its wood to prevent the fungus from being able to get into the wood and destroy the lignin. This lignin is the tree's first line of defense to protect its cellulose stores, which is how it powers itself, right? So remember, cellulose is this beautiful sugar that just, uh, it's very elegant. So it's like the single most common sugar or starch on the planet. And that's essentially the food that this plant is using to grow. So we want to protect its food source with the lignin. 
So it is interesting to see the fungal symbiosis working both to uptake more metals, increase the plant's resilience to it, and facilitate the defense against another fungal pathogen. So these strong relationships seem to give the tree quite an advantage in compromised soil. So you've got a very hardy plant uh, able to draw on ecosystem symbioses to keep itself healthy, even under these high metal loads. So the researchers wanted to identify all of these relationships and codify them into a more standard way of describing phytoremediation potential and using bioindicators for other contaminants of concern or other species. So this means evaluating the process of absorption of chemical elements and comparing how one plant does to another. In order to describe the interface of soil and plant, right, that's how the plant is getting metals, these researchers selected pH, EH, which is an electrical coefficient, CEC, which is a cation exchange capacity. Um, that's how the soil moving from like calcium to potassium or calcium to magnesium. So the easiest, the most preferred ion, I believe, is calcium. So the plants are going to want to have a high cation exchange capacity so that they can move those ions around as nutrients in their root systems. The content of clay particles and organic material in soil, concentration of iron, manganese, aluminum oxides, and hydroxides, the diversity and population of microorganisms, and what forms of the metals are being mobilized in various plant bits, right? Because what chromium in one form may not be metabolizable at all, but chromium in another form might be useful. They can complex it with the silica or they can do something with it. So the form of the metal is just as important as um, the quantity of the metal. So these factors all come together in a factor called the biological absorption coefficient, the BAC, or the index of bioaccumulation. When this ratio is over one, plants are accumulators. When not quite equal to one, they're considered indicators. And if they're less than one, they are excluders. And excluders are really important because they can survive where other plants can't, right? They're kind of on defense. So uh, having excluders in your population can actually kind of create these safe havens of metal-free zones that are really important. So living things tend to preferentially uptake phosphorus, sulfur, chlorine, bromine, and iodine. And for anybody who's studied a little bit of organic chemistry, you'll know why, right? These are big molecules that are required for almost every cellular process, except for maybe iodine. But they're very uh, reactive molecules. They like to be complex. They stabilize enzymatic systems. They are useful in um, cellular respiration, all kinds of stuff. So those elements tend to be necessary for growth. And existing metabolic systems support higher levels of these chemicals. Calcium, potassium, magnesium, zinc, and selenium tend to be selected for uptake, but in much smaller quantities or only under certain conditions. And these are known as strong uptake chemicals. Um, and the reason that they're needed is calcium, potassium, magnesium facilitate electrical transfer. Right. So these are key items for photosynthesis in the case of plants. They're key items for uh, nerves in our human body. So they're how we get neurological triggers or you know, how we get electrical systems to work, like our hearts or our brains. 
And then we have, we're going down the line here. So manganese, nickel, copper, cobalt, lead, arsenic, and mercury are very difficult for living things to use in these quantities. And they have a retarding effect on most, most growth. So they can cause tissue poisoning and or death for most organisms in high quantities. In, well, not high quantities. These are known as medium uptakes since trace amounts are still necessary for some biochemical processes or, um, or they can be managed or excreted in some cases. Finally, we have some weird ones, right? We have vanadium, we have chromium, we have cadmium, and these are not useful for biological processes. And in fact, they cause poisoning even in small doses. And a lot of times the creature can't get rid of them. Like they're, they're just too much. So they tend to just sit where they're at and the immune system can't do anything with them. They can't be moved because of their size or because of their reactivity. And these are known as weak or very weak uptake chemicals. And it is very rare to find any plants or organisms able to manage these contaminants without some sort of molecular genetic engineering to help them. But we're going to go into that in a later essay. So hold the phone on the genetic engineering stuff. So in order to represent the dynamic factor of metal bioaccumulation to define these uptake indicators, the authors of this particular article used an equation comparing the concentration of the metal in the tree wood ash on the treated site to the concentration of observed metal in the treated soil against the concentration of metals in the control soil to the concentration of metal in the control tree wood ash. Right? So they're making a big comparison here. They used a dynamic factor of metal translocation to reflect that metal was moved into vegetative organs, but not necessarily bioaccumulated, since vegetative organs have a habit of falling to the ground and decomposing in situ, thus not really remediating anything, right? The metals just move around. This is important in calculating the overall remediation value since translocated metals cannot be used to adjust the total value of metals removed from the soil and will bring down the overall dynamic factor of remediation depending on the timeline, right? So if you're able to harvest once per year, you're gonna have to put a translocation value in that to account for the stuff that you're not getting in that harvest. The dynamic factor of biomethylicity was developed to reflect the changes in metal usage within the plant metabolism. So this is important to identify where the metal goes, either in woody biomass's sequestered accumulation, vegetative organs as translocated removal or causing death disease in root and branch systems that result in a decrease to overall survivability, again, dropping the total dynamic remediation value. So it's measured by relating the ratio of metal accumulation in living biomass against the expected metal concentration in the earth crust as defined by geological measurements conducted both locally and globally. So this is important to compare many different species from many different locations to equalize performance across those complex metabolic patterns. And at the end, we get a dynamic bioremediation factor for the Scots pine that looks like this. And you can read the article for it. Uh, but this is a description of the interface between bioaccumulation, translocation, biophilicity to integrate four different types of information and make the whole relationship much more easy to see. Because the equation is dimensionless, it's easier to compare multiple species. 
of metals or alternate contaminants. But remember, you have to do you have to do the equation. You have to keep it consistent, right? So if you're going to be evaluating one species, you need to do it for each metal of interest, or vice versa. If you're evaluating um, a single contaminant of interest with multiple species, you need to keep your your test cases consistent. This is a complicated process, and having a balanced relationship that can make those interactions more accessible is a huge step in making phytoremediation workable for managers and project leaders trying to find good candidates for diverse contaminants on suboptimal soils. The researchers tested this set of relationships in 2006 in Lithuania with Scott's pines, silver birches, Betula pendula, and black alders, Alnus glutinosa, to see if they could confirm Scott's pines' utility in metal remediation and if they could estimate that utility in comparison to two other local species using this dynamic factor model. The results confirmed the empirical evidence of Scott's pines utility. So there were some unexpected results in the dynamic translocation factor specifically, favoring black alder for manganese and nickel uptake, but these results seemed to show a decreased metal translocation in the contaminated site versus the control site, which unusual, right? We shouldn't have seen that. However, the preponderance of the evidence showed Scott's pine meeting or exceeding its dynamic factor expectations in comparison to the other species, and the equation correctly identifying estimated uptake levels and species selection utility for metals uptake. An interesting finding from this was also that the more metals the Scott's pine took up, the weaker its overall protective functions became. even though that wasn't necessarily reflected in the remediation factor value. At the end of the experiment, the Scott's pine showed a reduced photosynthesis intensity, decreased immunity to air contaminants, and lower health when compared to the silver birch and black alder. So although the tree was able to uptake the medical metals of interest in high concentrations, five times the control uptake, with an average of 0.07 to 0.15% metal elimination per year, there were consequences to the tree's health and fitness. And this should be factored into any pilot study attempting to define dynamic factors for species selection. So it may be that a lower remediation factor distributed among more species to promote ecosystem resilience would be a more effective strategy, not just monoculture selection for maximum uptake. Thinking of a long-term sustainable and healthy forest would be a wiser criteria than just maximizing the dynamic factor values, in my opinion.